I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 86. I invite you and encourage you to turn to Psalm 86 so you can follow along. If you need a Bible, you guys have some. They're going to make their way toward the back, get their attention, and we'll get one of those Bibles to you. And it's marked for you at Psalm 86. This past Friday was Groundhog Day. I saw a meme that said, if your pastor saw his shadow, he <laughs> needs six more weeks in the current sermon series. <laughs> we have at least six more weeks in the book of Psalms. It's actually been quite uh, a while, actually since mid-December that we were last in this series, because we had holiday themed messages, we had an annual state of the church addresses at the beginning of the year, Sanctity of Life Sunday, now we return to our study of the book of Psalms, and in particular to the third of the five books that make up the entire collection of Psalms. I told you a number of times as we go through this series that this book has an intentional structure. The 150 individual Psalms of poetry and song are divided into five distinct movements that are a five-part cantata with each having a purpose that moves toward a finale of phrase that's found in the last third of the entire book. And so the title of this series is a cantata of phrase. Those five movements in the cantata are from the five individual collections, and we're looking at select psalms from each of them. Psalms 1 and 2 are an introduction to the entire book, and they correspond roughly to books 1 and 2. Because the upright life of individuals is addressed in Psalm 1 and in Book 1, and that of nations in Psalm 2 and Book 2. In the first 72 psalms that comprise Books 1 and 2, we not only see how God's people ought to live, and that his nation Israel ought to represent him, but you see opposition to both that's foreshadowed in the first two introductory psalms. The very first verse of the first psalm speaks of the wicked and the way of sinners and the company of mockers. And then Psalm 2 says, nations conspire, peoples plot, kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointing. One commentator says one of the most important structural principles in the psalms is that lament is a necessary path to praise. While there are mentions of praise and glimmers of trust and hope sprinkled throughout the whole Psalter, an emphasis on praise does not really come into focus until the last 50. Wickedness, sin, and uncertainty occupy much of the first hundred psalms. So there's much lament and confession in movements one and two. But movement three, where we are now, is certainly darkest of the Psalter, and the one we consider today, and from which we read earlier, earlier, Psalm number 86 is a dark lament. It says, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. Because the Bible is God's word, and because God is truthful, then it should come as no surprise to us that the Bible is accurate in the way that it describes life. 
There's no sugarcoating to make it seem better than it is in a fallen world. Did you know, friends, that you can be misled by what people say, but also by what people fail to say? If you're constantly presented with only one aspect of an issue and other factors are downplayed or even ignored, then you're not getting the true picture. And this is a major concern that I have with how our churches present the gospel. Far too often, it's an Americanized version that focuses on self-fulfillment and happiness and living happily ever after in this life. Only in that brand of religion can a book with the title, Your Best Life Now, be a bestseller among professed Christians. As you've heard me say, quoting another preacher, if your best life is now, then it means you're going to hell. Because according to the Bible, the very best life will be in heaven, and after we depart this life, it's only going to be one of those two. Years ago, I listened to a helpful radio show hosted by theologian Michael Horton called The White Horse Inn, where he would discuss the state of the evangelical church with his two co-hosts, and they would often talk about how so many of our churches could be called the Happy Radiant Fellowship. Because everyone's taught to always be upbeat and smiling and looking the part. And you hear this skewed perspective in the music of our churches that almost never hit a sad note, but it's all designed to make you jump around and be happy, happy, happy. Now to be sure, there is much to celebrate in the goodness of our God and the extravagant grace that He's bestowed on us. But the brightness of the good news is only seen against the darkness of the bad. And the bad news is that sin has resulted in fallen people living in a fallen world where we do and we experience many bad things. So the tenor of our gatherings should reflect both. If you attend a church for many weeks, you should hear in word and reading and song the full presentation of both sin and salvation. You cannot back away from proclaiming the hard things because otherwise we give a distorted picture of God and of ourselves and of our circumstances. So today, this very day, this Lord's Day, in our songs we ask, was it for sins that I had done that He groaned upon the tree. And we've admitted that we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And we do that because it's true and it's foundational as to why we need the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior so desperately. In doing so, we're presenting what God does in His Word regularly, including in this third movement of the book of Psalms. Just two psalms after today's psalm, in Psalm 88, you can read through all 18 verses of that psalm and you will not find a single note of hope. In fact, it ends with this line, darkness is my only friend. How do you jazz that up? But in our evangelical culture, that's what we would try to do. God talks about the darkness, so we do too. But thanks be to God, He does not leave it there, and neither can we. 
Some of you know that a turning point in church history is the movement that gained momentum through the 1400s. It came to fruition in the 1500s, a movement called the Reformation. It was a time characterized by some Latin terms like sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, sola fide, faith alone, as believers began to return to the foundational teachings of Christianity. That reformation was required because it came on the heels of what historians call the Dark Ages. Ages that were dark for several reasons, not least because the dominant religion at the time had corrupted the truth of the gospel and had even kept the word of God from the common person. With the reformation helping to end the Dark Ages, the Latin term that was used post abrus lux, after darkness, light. Light after darkness. Because life has darkness, sometimes a lot. But God gives light. And He gives light not just after, but in the midst of. And so the title of today's message that you see at the top of the outline that you received when you came in is not after darkness light, but during darkness. Light. And that's what we're going to see today from Psalm number 86. Let's bow and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you that we're here. Thank you for this great privilege. Help us each to see it that way. And help us to see it as a privilege to have your book in front of us. That you have taken pains to have composed and have preserved for us and available to us. So help us, Lord, to heed what you say. Apply what you say to our lives this day and this week so that we can better bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say, first of all, in your outline that we request of God in adversity. We request of God in adversity. Verse 1 says, hear me, Lord, and answer me. Now, this is an urgent prayer because here... That word here is literally a request to incline your ear, Lord. Listen carefully or closely. We're not told the exact incident that prompted this plea, but it involves people out to get the psalmist. Because according to verse 16, foes are attacking and they are trying to kill. Now you may not have anyone trying to kill you, but we all do find ourselves at our wit's end from time to time, because we all go through trial, since life in a fallen world is a hard and sometimes dark slog. Job said, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. That phrase that I used just a moment ago, that we are sometimes at our wit's end, is one that we say and perhaps do not realize that it actually comes from the Bible. In fact, it comes from the book of Psalms in Psalm 107 that says they were at their wit's end and then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Sometimes we get ourselves in trouble. Other times trouble comes to us through no fault of our own. But in a fallen world, we will be troubled and in some of those, we're at the end of our solutions, at the end of our thinking and planning and strategizing. None of those turn out to be the answer. We have our wits about us, but we're at the end of them, and the trouble remains. 
The ubiquity of adversity is what has caused me to say to you over the years, and I can say right now with full confidence that each of us is in one of three situations. We're either in a trial, we've either recently emerged from a trial, or we're fixing to go into a trial. So you're dealing with one that you're in, or you should be preparing for the one ahead. And we'll see how you do that in a bit. So we request of God in adversity adversity that surely will come. And we do so, I say in the outline, because of who we are. Verse 1 says, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for because I am poor and needy. This is an urgent prayer of one who has a relationship with the Lord. And I know that because in verse 1, the name that's used of God there in verse 1 is the personal name that he gave to his people, Yahweh. You see that the four letters, L-O-R-D, are all capitalized. And I've explained in weeks past that when you see that, that is the translator's way of indicating that the Hebrew word behind that English word, L-O-R-D, all capitals, is the word Y-H-W-H. We pronounce Yahweh. The word Lord is used 11 times in this psalm, and four of them are in context that refer to the relationship that the psalmist has with God. Verse 1, hear me, Yahweh, hear me, Lord. Verse 6, hear my prayer, Yahweh, Lord. Verse 11, Teach me your way, Lord. The last verse, verse 17. You, Lord, have helped me. In the other seven uses of Lord, it's a translation not of Yahweh, but Adonai. And we'll see that those refer to God as He is in His character. Whether one has a relationship with Him or not, this is just who He is. So here you have yet another instance in the Word of God in which a child of God, One who has a personal relationship with him also has a troubled relationship to life. One of the good effects of trials is the development of humility. Adversity should humble us when we're brought low and reminded of how dependent we are. And God wants it this way so that we do not confuse the order that He has built into His world. God first, us second. Creator first, creature second. Love the Lord your God is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul was given a trial for this very purpose, to to humble him. Here's what he said. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. Now implicit in this first line in verse 1 of Psalm 86 is the fact that God is the one with the resources to help. And that's why the psalmist then cries out to him. We have nothing but that which is from his hand. So the reason we go to God is not just because we have nothing, we're poor and needy, but because he has everything. He is not poor and needy. And so the for in verse 1, or because I am poor and needy, yes, it speaks to our condition, but it contrasts with God's. We have nothing. He has everything. 
We are dependent on Him. And friends, this should be the regular shape and habit of our prayers. To acknowledge Him as the one who is priority. And so, as I said in the mini-series on prayer that we did last year, and as outlined in Jesus' model prayer for His followers, we speak first to God about Him before we speak to Him about ourselves. It's your name. Be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Our relationship to God is one of dependence as creatures to the Creator, and all creation is in His hands, but His people are not like everybody else. Yes, like everybody else, we are dependent creatures, but we are in special relationship to Him. And so we can come in Jesus' name. And it's why we pray in Jesus' name, because it signifies our relationship to the One who is our intercessor, who is at the right hand of the Father, having done and completed what is necessary for us to have a relationship with Him. And so we come because of who we are. We're without resources to, to make it, but as the children of God, to whom the Bible says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We request of God in adversity because of who we are and because of who He is. In verse 1, and then in the verses that follow, eight times a reason is given for the request. There are actually 15 requests in this psalm. And eight times a reason is given as seen in the use of the word for meaning because. Now, it's important to understand that these are not just reasons God should answer us, but these are reasons that we ask God in the first place. <laughs> For, because, this is why I'm coming to you. In verse 1, I'm coming to you, Lord, because I'm poor and needy. I'm coming to you because you are the one with the resources, not me. And then in verse 2, guard my life. For I am faithful to you. Why am I faithful to you? Because I know you're the one who can guard my life. Verse 3, have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Why do I do that? Because I know you are the one who dispenses mercy. Verse 4, bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. Why do I do that? Because you, Lord, are the one who can bring joy in the midst of adversity. And then again in verses 7 and 10 and 13 and 17. 7, 10, 13, and 17. We're given reasons for what is asked, and those reasons are all tied to God's character. I'm faithful to you, verse 2 and asking you to guard my life because I know you can. I call on you, verse 3, asking you to have mercy because I know it's who you are. I put my trust in you, verse 4, and I ask you to bring joy in the midst of trial because I'm yours and I know you give good gifts to your children. And then in verse 5, you, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. And if you look down in verse 15, similarly, you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. 
Now those truths about God and his character, which is what this psalm is filled with, and it's why the psalmist is going to him as he explains with all of those for and because clauses. And this character described in verses 5 and 15 goes back no less than five centuries earlier where God told Moses in Exodus chapter 34 that he, God, is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This God-saturated mindset that the psalmist is exhibiting here is what's going to sustain him in his adverse circumstance. You see, friends, as long as we have the ability to look up, there will always be light and hope. And we cultivate that ability to look to God by meditating on who God is, hear this, in the good times. Remember I said you're in a trial, coming out of a trial, you're going into it, okay? Take advantage of that brief time that you're not. And if God grants you a lengthy period of, of good times, take advantage of meditating upon who God is at that time. The recounting of God's character by the psalmist demonstrates his knowledge of truth about God upon which he could call in his time of need. In the time between trials, we build a reservoir of truth upon which we can draw in time of trial. But too often, we forget God until trouble comes, as it surely will, and then we expect it to be imparted. We want a miracle. We want divine intervention. But hear this as well. The Christian life is not lived in the miraculous, but in the providential, in the everyday of life, in thanking God, thinking about Him, pointing our thoughts to Him in the everyday and every moments of life. It's the difference between the person who grieves at a loss but does not fall apart versus the person who completely loses it. person who on a daily, weekly basis has been cultivating this knowledge of God, meditating upon who God is, then something happens to them. They now have that to draw upon. That's what the psalmist has here. Now for sure, when you get a gut punch, you'll be dazed and confused, and you'll need time to gain your bearings. But those who are immersed in truth about God are able to keep it together. I've seen people who attend church regularly, are involved in its ministry. They have it as their primary source of social interaction, all of these good things, but who, in all that time, apparently did not personally appropriate what they heard over years of good teaching. And I can say it was good teaching because I'm thinking of a situation I know about for a person who was a decades-long member of a very good church, not this one. But when they lost their spouse, it was as if they had no spiritual resources upon which to draw. As if all of those years of solid teaching were heard, but never heard. Y'all see the thing? You can hear, but not a part. But not here. 
almost perfect. Regular, red, regular, and apparently applied and heated regularly as well. And so he has these good reasons at his disposal for his request. Reasons that are found in the character of God. Character that he's rehearsed in his heart and his mind, and so he can look to in his time of need. I saw a post at the beginning of this week that said, it's a new day, time to remember what is true. That this day exists for God's glory. That sin's promises are lies. That God is trustworthy in everything. That Jesus, the friend of sinners, loves me. That in Christ I am forgiven forever. That God will strengthen me for today. That He will hold me fast. And that list could be lengthened, could it not? And should it not? on a regular basis for us, that's the way to prepare for what inevitably comes. And so we request of God in adversity, and we respond to God in adversity. We have responsibility in our trials. Said more carefully, we have response-ability. That is, we have the ability to respond. And in our trials, we have the responsibility to respond as God intends. And how we respond will determine whether we gain what God has designed. So look at verse 11 and what the psalmist here in Psalm 86 says. Verse 11, teach me your way, Lord that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. So in the midst of this adversity that he has going on, this is what he says, I want to get out of it. I want to be taught your way, Lord. I want to have an undivided heart. I want to praise you with all of my heart and glorify your name forever. He's asking for what we asked in song last week when we sang together, let the treasures of the trial form within me as I go. And at the end of this long passage, let me leave them at your throne. In the well-known passage in James chapter 1 that deals with trials that God allows in the life of His children, we are told what God's design is for those. James chapter 1, consider it pure joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So God allows trials, adversity into our lives, difficult circumstances, but for His good purpose. And his good purpose is that, we, that it produces perseverance and we become mature. Now, you notice I've highlighted that word trials for you. We'll see why in just a bit. So you see that God has spiritual growth in mind for what he allows in our lives. And I've highlighted that word trials because later in that same passage, James chapter 1, here's what it says, when tempted... And then notice, I've got in brackets there, tried or trial. 
because that word translated tempted is the same one back up in verse 2, trials. It actually could be translated when tried or when in a trial. No one should say, God is tempting me. That is, no one should say, God allowed this in my life for an evil purpose, for me to sin. And gives the reasons why. God does not tempt. Each one is tempted when? They're dragged away of their own evil desire. So on the one hand, you have the same word, back up in verse 2, same Greek word, translated as trial. Then when you get down to verse 12, it's translated as tempted or a temptation. Now why did the translators do that? Because in the context, it's talking about two different people and two different ways of responding to the same circumstance. You see, the very same trial that results in growth for one person can be a temptation to sin in the life of another. God intends it for good, but whether that is achieved involves how we respond. The psalmist responded well because of what he knew he could draw upon. And so I just pause and I ask you, as I ask myself, how did you respond to the last trial? How did you respond to the one 10 years ago that you're still dragging around? If you're still dragging it around, I know the answer to that, right? But many people are living lives now that are bogged down by the failure to respond as God intended years ago. The psalmist responded well because of what he knew and he could draw upon. Verse 13. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. He knows that God has good in mind for him, and so he responds accordingly, even anticipating deliverance from this adversity based on, undoubtedly, God's goodness to him in the past. And so you should do that. I should do that. We should draw upon God's goodness to us in our experience, in order to anticipate God's goodness to us in our experience to come. And just reading God's Word and seeing how He has worked in the lives of His people should give us the encouragement we need in the trials that we endure now. So we request of God in adversity, we respond to God in adversity, and we represent our God in adversity. In the midst of the attack of verse 14, God's good character is recalled in verses 15 and 16. And then the psalm ends in verse 17 with the psalmist asking, verse 17, or the psalmist saying, give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The psalmist realizes that as a known follower of Yahweh, he represents Yahweh to other people. So I, the psalmist, am a known follower of the God of Israel. And in the midst of what I'm going through, I got people looking at me, I got people attacking me. And how I deal with this 
and how my God helps me deal with it is going to be a reflection upon him. And so he realizes that as a known follower of the God of Israel, he represents him to others, including his and God's enemies. And so how each handles it reflects upon God. When we are dependent, friends, it puts creator and creature in proper relationship, as I said other. And when we are contented, it shows what we think of this God on whom we're dependent. Let me say it again. When we are dependent, it puts creator and creature in proper relationship. And when we are contented in that dependency, it shows what we think of this God. And that in turn is what we show to others. How we handle, in other words, adversity is a part of our witness. If we don't handle stuff any different than the world, then where's this God you've been telling me about? Who you say has the power to raise people from the dead, and he's coming again to fashion a whole new world, and yet he can't help you in your little world. How we handle reflects on God, and it's part of our witness. You see this in the New Testament. The apostles went out to preach the gospel, and they faced opposition. They were thrown in jail. Here's what the Bible says after the apostles had a meeting with the religious leaders, questioning them about the, the gospel. And they were flogged. They were, they were beaten for refusing to stop preaching the gospel. And here's what it says. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, that ruling religious body, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Well, that sends a message, doesn't it? That sends a message about what I think about this God. When they come out of there, they're rejoicing. What are those people watching that thinking? That's Acts chapter 5. But then later in Acts chapter 16, you've got the same kind of thing happening again. Paul and Silas go into the city of Philippi. They are jailed for preaching the gospel. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 16 that around midnight, here's what they're doing. They're praying and they're singing hymns. So you think about being a jailer in Philippi with those two guys there. And what are you thinking about this God that they are compelled to obey and proclaim even in the face of severe adversity and even in that cell, they're singing praise to him. The Bible tells us that in Acts 16 that God moved an earthquake to open the cell doors. <laughs> One of the jailers came running and he says to these guys, what do I need to do to be saved? The Bible says he was saved and his house came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of their witness. And so Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we are Christ's ambassadors. 
We represent Him and His message to an onlooking world as though God were making His appeal through us. You see, friends, God has a stake in what happens to you and how you behave in it. Do you remember that in the book of Job, why the calamity that befell Job happened in the first place? Do you all remember? It was a contest of sorts (laughs) where Satan presents himself to God. Don't ever forget that Satan has to present himself to God. He's on a leash. God's holding it. And he says, Satan does, hey, have you considered Job? Or actually, God brought up Job. Have you considered Job? You know, Job's in heaven now, and I'm sure Job has said, hey, why'd you bring me up (laughs) in that conversation? But God says to Satan, have you considered my, my servant Job? And Satan says, you know, he only serves you because you give him stuff. If you take away the stuff, it's not you he loves. This is a contest. The stuff is taken away, and in the end, Job still serves God. Because it wasn't ultimately about the stuff. It wasn't ultimately about the blessings. So our trials reveal to whom or to what we are committed So we request of God in adversity. We respond to Him in it. Represent Him. And then lastly, we rest in God in adversity. The heart of this psalm is in the middle. In verses 8 through 10. Verse 8. Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations that you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. See, the psalmist knows that with everything going on in my life, the people who are coming at me, whatever happens in the midst of this, there is a future that God has promised for his people. And it's a future that is absolutely sure. And to this point, I haven't said anything about who it is that wrote this psalm. I just keep saying the psalmist. But at the top, as Pastor Larry read earlier, it says a psalm of David. And this is the only psalm by God's anointed King David in this movement of book number three. In Movements 1 and 2, David wrote at least 54 of the Psalms. Here, in this book, he writes one. It's this one. And you may remember that that's important because it was to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 16, that God made what is called the Davidic covenant with David. And David, there is going to be one that is going to be, come from your line. He's going to sit on your throne. And it's going to be established forever. David writes this. And in the midst of the enemies, in the midst of the unknown and the uncertainty, he knows God's made this promise. And because of what God had 
promise to David that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever, David can say this then with confidence in the middle of Psalm 86. The Davidic covenant will be fulfilled in the son of David that we know as Jesus the Christ. And so friends, in the middle of your junk and my junk, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now. And he's promised to come again. And he's going to make all things new. And you know that to be true. Do you believe it? And do you believe in the meantime that he's using your stuff to mature you for his good ends? And so to you respond to it then that way? There is always light in the darkness for the Christian. The light of hope seen in this being a Davidic psalm, looking forward to this future son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. That light shines through when I remember who I am because of who he is. Here's your take-home truth then. In the midst of dark circumstances, Christians always have access, not just to light, but notice I say, the light with a capital L, the Lord Jesus himself. But that is for Christians. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. But I invite you to consider whether or not you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore whether or not these promises are yours. Or are you a church attender? Are you somebody who comes, like the person that I described earlier at another church, there regularly, hear but don't heed. And then what's manifest in the time of trial is I've got no resources to depend upon. So to become a child of God, you realize that you are a sinner. You are part of the fallenness. You add to it as do I. You recognize that the only solution is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life and death on your behalf. He lived the life that you were to live. He died the death that you deserve. You repent. Lord, I've been going my own way. I've been making my own rules. I've been following my own counsel and the counsel of others outside the counsel of your word. I'm no longer going to go my way. I'm going to go your way. That's what repentance is. A change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow from your heart to God in your own words to Him, acknowledge your sin. Tell Him that you believe who He is and what He has done and that you need Him to save, rescue, deliver you from you and the consequences of your sin. Ask Him to save you and the Bible promises He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, we again thank You for the privilege of being here because it's you who have allowed it, made it possible, worked in our hearts and our circumstances for this date on your divine calendar to be here on February 4, the year of our Lord, 2024. Thank you that we could take these sacred moments and look at your word and be reminded of who you are, especially who you are in the midst of the mess that we endure in a fallen world. Lord, help me to do that in my trials faithfully.
because I claim to serve a faithful God. May that be a witness to others. May it be what sustains me in the midst of my trials. And I pray that that will be true for my brothers and sisters here. This coming week, that they will have a renewed and different perspective on the circumstances that you have designed for them. And then look for any who came into this room unsure if they have a relationship with you, that you are moving upon their hearts now and drawing them out of the world into yourself, causing them to respond to their desperate need of Jesus Christ as Savior. Change them from the inside out as you were pleased to do with your people, and we will give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together now for our closing song.